you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. Feels good to be back in the pulpit this morning. It's been a while. Uh, a couple weeks that we've had candidates here uh, preaching for us, and then we were off for a week with weather, and so it uh, feels kind of odd to be uh, back again, but it feels good, and so I'm glad. We are working our way through the book of Titus. However, uh, we won't be able to finish it. Uh, we're going to make it through chapter 2 uh, before I go, and then either your next pastor can finish it, or maybe I can come back sometime, I don't know. But uh, chapter 3, you'll be on your own uh, to finish that one out. So uh, that's how it goes. That's okay. Um, I was going to try to get it all in, and there's just too much. Uh, we would have not done justice to the, to the text to try to squish it all in just a few weeks. So uh, we'll just uh, do with chapter 2. So if you'll stand with me, I would like to read uh, this chapter. It's been a while, so I'm just going to read, uh, it's only 15 verses, so I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 2, so we re- kind of remember what we are talking about, and then we'll dig into verses 7 through 10 this morning. Titus, here, receiving a letter from Paul, and Paul writes this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. God, as we look again into this book of Titus and how you instruct us here through Paul, and how to live as a church body. I pray that we would grasp the extent and the depth of your words for us, your instruction, and that we would respond to that out of a heart that knows that we have been redeemed from all lawlessness, that we've become a possession of yours, and from that heart of grateful love toward you, we would then live in such a way as to adorn the doctrine of your word, to make it look beautiful in the eyes of those who see us. I pray you'd help us to understand and and grasp that this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
You may be seated. You might already know this, but did you know that there are times when preachers are fearful of preaching some passages of Scripture? It's true. Uh, They're afraid of preaching some parts of the Bible. Uh, But there's different kinds of fears, and I want you to understand the difference. The first kind of fear when a pastor can be afraid to preach something is he's afraid that if he preaches a particular passage and how it's written and how it's explained by God or how God intended it, that the people are going to be mad, that maybe they're going to be disappointed, they're not going to like him anymore, and so he'll tend to shy away from those. He's, he's uh, afraid of what people may say and tell others what a miserable preacher they have, and so he's fearful of that. Uh, By God's grace, that's one kind of fear that I've never struggled with much. Some, but not much, uh, thankfully. But there's another kind of fear that preachers have, and it's that kind of fear uh, that I have this morning whenever I come to a passage like this. My fear is when you preach through a book like Titus, in particular Titus 2 and then into Titus 3, that people will hear what they're supposed to do and they'll do it, but they'll miss the bigger picture. They'll miss the point of why they're doing what they're doing. And you'll end up producing a bunch of Pharisees. People that are doing the right things but have no idea why uh, and couldn't explain it if, if you cornered them about it. That's the kind of fear that I have uh, this morning as we go into Titus 2. Because when you look down through Titus 2, and you see all of those things addressed to older men, older women, younger men, you can sort of go down through that list and you can check them off. Yep, I'm self-controlled. Yep, I'm reverent. Yep, I I don't have a problem with with wine, so on and so forth. And you can miss that bigger picture of why Paul is instructing Titus. That's why... I think Paul understood this too. That's why three different times in Titus 2, he gives purpose statements. Here's why I'm telling you to do this, Titus. Here's why. I want you to look at them. Uh, Verses 5, 8, and 10. Look at verse 5. There's a purpose statement here. Why are we doing this, Paul? That the word of God may not be reviled. That's why. Or look down at verse 8. Why are you telling us this, Paul? so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. It's a purpose statement. Go down to verse 10. Why are we doing these things again? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See, every one of those purpose statements, and the purpose of Titus 2, is so that you and I have an outward view, that we're thinking about others As they watch us. If you and I live how Paul tells us to live and how Jesus demonstrated to live, as a church, we will live counterculturally. We're just going to stand out. There's no way around it. You're going to look different, not physically, but the way you act, you're going to be different than people that are around you. You are living your life in a way that you're trying to please God. You're, You're seeking... God's glory and not your own because that's what the world's done. They're, they're looking for their own glory. And so the very way you conduct yourself and the motives that drive your behavior 
are very countercultural. They're going to they're look different. They're going to stand out. And so here's what happens. The world is going to watch you because they're trying to figure out if this is genuine or not. Is this real? And if there is ever a crack, if there is ever a break in the framework that we call Christianity, immediately the world discounts the whole system of Christianity. See, it's not real. See that guy over there? He's a fake. He calls himself a Christian, and immediately everyone that calls themselves a Christian is involved in this man's disappointment. If there's a scandal in the church, if there's a split in the church, if there's misappropriation of money, and that becomes all these headlines, if any of those things happen, the world stands back and they laugh, and they say, see, it's all a joke. It's, it's foolishness. They're, they are no different than us. And so Paul, when he gets here in Titus, and he's giving us his instructions in Titus chapter 2, he's not telling us these things so that we can check them off a list and then pat ourselves on the back that we're doing such a wonderful job as a Christian. He's telling us, I want you to do these things so that when the world watches you, and when the world sees you, and they see that you really are different, it gives you then the platform, the opportunity to point back to God and say, this is why I live this way. This is why I'm different. And your life then proves the authenticity of a spirit-initiated transformation. You're a different person. You're going to live differently. And so Titus 2, while it looks at our behavior The purpose statements tell us that we should have a very outward focus, that that's why we're doing these things that we're doing. We're adorning the doctrine of God. We're doing these things so that we can't be put to shame, so that no one can revile us, so that it's real, it's authentic. Matthew chapter 5 says it like this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and pat you on the back, right? No. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, people are watching. So how we live gives glory to God or it gives glory to us. So, living a Titus 2 lifestyle will in the end produce an evangelistic platform for you. Because eventually someone's going to ask, why do you live like that? Why do you do that? Why don't you act like everybody else? How do you respond that way uh, so gracefully uh, in trial? And it gives you the opportunity to share the reason why you live the way you do. Okay? And the reason is in verses 11 to 14. And then we'll, Lord willing, we'll cover that next week. That's the reason. It's the, the uh, focus of why we live the way we do. Okay? In the end, we know that it's the gospel that changed us. Satan had his grip on you, sin had its grip on you, and when the Son died and rose again on your behalf, the Spirit transformed your soul and you responded in faith to that. And you repented. You changed your lifestyle. You're different. And today now, you live your life in response to the Christ who died for you. It's the gospel message that has transferred you. It's the, it's the greatest news on the earth. And you earn the right to speak that to others based on the virtue of how you live. 
People are going to watch how you live, and that's going to give you then the right to speak to them. Because if they see you're a fake, they're never going to listen to anything you have to say, right? Okay, so that's the greater purpose of Titus 2. To live our lives in such a way that we have this platform to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to become Pharisees. I don't want you to walk out of here and providence is a bunch of fakes. I want you to be real and I want you to be authentic. So let's dive in and let's see what he has for us this morning. Now, if you haven't been here before, as we've been going through Titus 2, you can go back and listen to the sermons online. But we've addressed older men, we've addressed older women, uh, we've addressed younger women... And then we started to talk about younger men. We got through verse 6. Uh, we weren't able to finish verses 7 and 8. And I promised you we'd come back to it. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to finish talking about younger men uh, this morning. Uh, so if you're a young guy, and remember we defined a young guy. Uh, perhaps anybody who's 40 and under, maybe it was what Paul had in mind. Uh, we know once you were 60, you were kind of considered an older man. So somewhere in 40s maybe uh, and uh, under, you're still a younger man, according to, to Paul. So... Let's see what Paul has to say to younger men. Look at verse 6. We'll kind of review a bit and then jump into verse 7. Verse 6, he says, I urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And this is really an admonition that he's given to every age group. But these younger men, I want you to be self-controlled. And we talked about that there are at least three ways that younger men struggle with self-control. One is motivation. A lack of control over their body. They're maybe a bit lazy. It's hard to get them out of bed sometimes, uh, younger men. And so Paul's encouraging younger men to be self-controlled with your body. Get up when it's time to get up. Do the things that you need to do. Uh, There's also self-control in the area of freedom. You give a young man freedom, and uh, if he's not trained well, if he's not living a life, a godly life, he can take that freedom and he can stretch it to its umph degree, right? So Paul says there needs to be some free, uh, there needs to be some uh, self-control there to recognize that boundaries are for your good. Boundaries are for your good. And then we said, too, that there needs to be self-control in this matter of pride. Young men, uh, like myself, are prone to think we're the wisest people in the world. We know everything. And, And as we get a little bit older, we start to realize that dad in fact, isn't the dumbest person in the world and that he does know a few things. That's that's part of a maturity that comes about from a young man. But it's a check on our pride. It's a self-control of of our pride. So uh, young men uh, are called to self-control in verse 6. This idea of maturity, uh, this idea of uh, humility, this idea of a motivation. Greta and I were just talking about this the other evening, about... Uh, Young men in particular, but really uh, young folks. And you know one of the things that impresses my wife and I uh, more than a lot of things? One of the things that impresses us is when we can engage in a conversation with a teen and have an actual conversation. Have you ever been around teens? You know, a lot of teens uh, in particular, um, they're kind of, it's kind of a rare thing because right? they're sort of uh, all over here and there. Um, but when you can have this conversation with a young man or a young woman and it's a mature, humble, graceful conversation and you can just see the evidence of God's grace in that person's life, that they have this self-control about them that they can engage in those kinds of interactions with older adults. It's impressive. 
when a, when a young person is where he says he will be at the time he says he will be there. That's impressive. That's a, that's a mark of self-control. Uh, when a young person helps where help is needed. You know, if you see a young person and, and they're folding chairs, they're cleaning up after the party, they're taking out their trash, it's kind of an impressive thing. Because you realize that there's this maturity about this young man that isn't marked in a lot of his peers. And so it's an evidence of God's grace. And people notice those kinds of things. We notice it. People notice those kinds of things. And so young men, when you're exercising self-control and you're doing those things and somebody compliments you, man, you're doing a great job. Just real quickly in your heart, maybe verbally too, just give that praise back to God. God, thank you for helping me grow in this area of self-control, helping me grow in maturity, helping me grow in humility. Be quick to give that praise um, back to God. It's your opportunity then to, to speak the, the wonders of God's grace, even at a, at a young age. That's a young man. So what else? Verse 7, to young men, uh, show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works and in your, in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So let's kind of break that down a little bit. The first one he says is show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. That overlaps a little bit with self-control that we talked about um, but it's a call for a young man to model the things that he knows God is calling him to do. You be the model. A lot of young men like to be the teacher. And a lot of young men like to be the one calling the shots. But not a lot of young men like to be a model and actually do them. And do you know what you call a teacher who doesn't model? You call him a hypocrite, right? It's a person who doesn't practice what he preaches. That's where we get that terminology. That's where we get that that phrase. If you want people to hear what you say, then you need to model for them what to do. So Paul here says, you young men, be a model of all good works. And next he says, in your teaching, show integrity. Show integrity, that's propriety. That's without defect. That is soundness. In other words, as a young man, you need to know the word of God and you need to do it. And then when you teach it, you teach it soundly with integrity. It doesn't have any breaks in it. Next, he says, in your teaching, show dignity. That's an interesting word, dignity. The word actually means a level of seriousness. Now, think about this for a minute. Why would Paul call on a young man to have an air of seriousness about him? Well, I think it's because a lot of young men tend to view life as a big joke. Everything's fun and games. Everything's just whatever. You know, what are we going to do tonight? I don't know, whatever. You know, where are we going to go? Whatever. You know, did you hear about this? Yeah, whatever. There's there's no seriousness about life. Now, that doesn't mean young men don't laugh. It's not what this is calling. In fact, there's a place for that. I think Jesus laughed. God has given us laughter as a gift. But I think what this means is There are times when young men need to understand that there are some things that are serious. And when they are seriousness, there should be this sense of dignity about you 
that you are serious. Some people, uh, some young people, when they go to church, uh, view church as kind of another entertainment venue, and and they look for their pastor to be a stand-up comedian. And they fail to recognize, I think, the gravity and sometimes the weightiness of God's word. There's an air of seriousness. It doesn't mean you don't have fun, but there's an air of seriousness when you're studying God's word. This is weighty. This is real. One of the things that frightens me, and I'm involved in it, so I don't want you to think that I'm above this somehow, but one of the things that frightens me a bit is how we, are, we train up our, our young folks and our young men to think so shallowly. Um, we have 30-second ads on TV, and that's it. That's about all we can concentrate, 30 seconds. We've got to move on to something else. Uh, we use Twitter, and you have 140 characters. That's it. Uh, we have Snapchat. You have 10 seconds to send a picture. Everything we do is just so quick and it's so shallow that we don't often call on young men in particular to have this sense of seriousness about them and to sit and focus on something for an extended period of time. It's difficult. But I just encourage you, if you're a young man, to take blocks of time 15 minutes might seem like a long time when you're used to 30 seconds, or maybe a half hour, where you're studying the Word of God, when you're diligently focusing on one thing for a long period of time. I think that's a sense of dignity, seriousness that Paul is urging young men to consider. It brings about a level of maturity, again, that you don't see in a lot of young men. And maybe not until they're quite a bit older. So... Uh, that kind of behavior stands out in a world where people are very shallow. The last one here that Paul says in verse 8, he says, they should show sound speech that cannot be condemned. And the sound speech here, by the way, in, in that particular verse is not theology. That's not what Paul has in mind. What he's talking about in sound speech is your daily conversation. It's really kind of cool. If you look at the root word of the sound speech, it's the word hygiene. In other other words, it means your speech is healthy. It's clean. It doesn't have a bad odor. I was at uh, Mi Pueblo a few weeks ago. I took my daughter there for her birthday. And there was a table, just a couple tables over from us. There weren't a lot of people in there this particular day. And there's a table a couple, uh, a couple tables over and there's two teenage boys there and uh, they, they looked nice. They were dressed nice. Uh, they looked like they had the world going for them. Um, but their speech was horrid. I could hear it from where I was at and I was just hoping that Abby couldn't hear it as we were talking and uh, their speech was just filthy. And this is what Paul's talking about. He says that you have sound speech, you have hygienic speech, you have healthy, clean speech. Why? So that it cannot be condemned. So that you stand out as children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The Cretans that Titus is getting ready to to teach here, they they say that they're, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers. They didn't have sound speech, they were coarse. They were rude. Don't be like them. That's what Paul's saying. Don't, don't be like the Cretans. 
have good speech, healthy speech. And why? Why all these things? Well, again, we'll go back to that purpose statement. Young man, if you live your life in such a way that these characteristics mark you, we as individuals are going to give you praise because it's going to stand out as different. It's countercultural. But in the end, it gives you the platform that when somebody tries to attack your character, they're going to have a difficult time nailing you down on something. Because they look at your life and you're self-controlled, you're humble, you're, you teach with integrity, you're, your speech is well. I mean, it's hard to look at a young man and fault him when these characteristics are evident in his life. That's what Paul's trying to get at. And so uh, now, when I hear that young man or see that young man, and as he grows and begins teaching and training his family and other church members, there's a, a matter of respect I'm going to have for that person because he's demonstrated that he lives his life in a godly way. It doesn't mean your critics aren't going to vanish. You'll always have critics. You'll always have people that are out there to try to put you to shame. Um, But what it means is they're not going to be able to grab a hold of anything. They're going to be embarrassed when they say something about you because it's going to prove itself untrue by the character of your life. Now, you have to understand, and I think we've alluded to this, your life, the way you live it, and your profession then, those two have to agree, or this will never work. You can't say one thing and live another. It'll never work. Uh, So let me just kind of throw this out there. Don't say that you're a Christian and then secretly go to the bars and get plastered there, okay? People aren't going to buy that. Don't tell people that you're a godly family man and then have a secret mistress out here on the side somewhere. It's never going to work. It's going to bring ruin on the name of Christ. Don't tell people that you're a one-woman man and then you spend every dark hour on the internet scrounging up more pornography to view. Your life and your profession have to match. Because if those two aren't in agreement, then the world's going to pick you apart so quick it's going to be embarrassing. All right? The world has enough hypocrites. We don't need any more in the church. Okay? Satan, I think, sits back and laughs. Just gets joy out of people who claim to be Christians and then are smeared by the actions that take place in secret. That's young men. All right? Young men, I'm one of you, I think, for a while. Um, so let's, let's do the, the work of the Lord. So let's turn our attention now to verses 9 and 10. And we'll, we'll finish out with these. This, this 9 and 10 uh, turns the attention, okay? We, we've sort of been addressing all these family members. You have older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And then you also had slaves that were members of the household in, in Paul's day, okay? Verses 9 and 10 just so you know, uh, verses 9 and 10, we're going to be a whole separate sermon, um, but we're going to squeeze these into just a few minutes here, okay? Verse 9. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters, again, in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The New Testament never attacks slavery as an institution. 
I don't know if you know that, but the New Testament never attacks slavery as an institution. But what it does do is that it reorders the relationship between slaves and masters, and it ends up making them equal as brothers in Christ. Paul knows that the best way to change the social structure is from the inside out. And so as he begins giving instructions to slaves, and in other places he gives instructions to masters, he knows that from the inside out he can bring radical change in social structures as opposed to just condemning it outright. And in fact, we know that it worked because over time slavery all but disappeared in Rome through, at least in part, the influence of Christianity. So we're looking at these verses from Paul's eyes. Paul is addressing slaves in these verses. But we can pull from that principles that apply to slave-master relationships today. We call them employee-employer relationships. So we can pull out some of these same principles for you and I today as employees that Paul pointed to slaves and says, here's what you need to do. Okay, so there is truth here uh, for us. Number one, employees are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Now, of course, we know that in other places of Scripture, in everything is limited to things that don't violate the word of God. In other words, if your employer instructs you to do something that is sinful, then you can't do that. There's a line that you draw. I can't violate God's word. But outside of that, anything that my boss instructs me to do, anything that my employer instructs me to do, I'm going to do it with an attitude of submission. I bring myself voluntarily under alignment with my employer. He gives me an instruction. It doesn't violate God's word, and I do it even if I think that that decision maybe isn't the wisest decision in the world, or I would have done it another way. He is my authority. And so if that's how he's asked me to do it, then I'm going to do it. Now, that doesn't mean I can't offer a suggestion, but if he says, no, Sean, here's how I want you to do this job, then as an employee, I willingly submit myself to his authority, and I follow through with those instructions. That's what Paul's talking about here. For those of you who are in the room this morning, and you are employers. You have people that work for you. You know those employees that are submissive, don't you? You can tell. You can tell those employees. You you know those employees that if I give this employee something to do, he or she is going to carry it out, and it's going to be done how I want it to do. And you also know those employees that you have uh, that aren't as submissive. They'll do what you told them to do, but they're going to grumble the whole way. Or they're going to do it half-heartedly in the hopes that you never ask them to do that again, right? You know those kind of employees. And Paul says, you need to be the kind of employee that is submissive to your master in everything. You follow their instructions. You have this inward conformance that matches your outward conformance. One of my favorite cartoons of all time. I wish I, I went and looked for it again this week, and I cannot find it, but one of my favorite cartoons of all time is this, this one picture of this boss, and he's sitting in this tall office chair, and he's got this humongous desk in front of him, and in front of 
in front of the desk is one of his employees, and the employee is bent over um, and pointing at his backside, okay? Telling the boss where he can plant it, right? Okay. So, and at the same time that this is happening, a secretary is leaning inside the door, addressing this employee, and she says, Mr. Smith, your wife is on the phone. Something about those lottery numbers she gave you weren't the right ones, and you didn't win. Now think about that for a minute. It'll sink in. That employee is going to have a hard time now proving his submissiveness to his boss, right? Because he was telling him where to kiss it. He was leaving. Now he's going to have to keep working for him. I think Paul would say... You need to be submissive, joyfully submissive to your own boss. Not only that, Paul says in verse 9, but they are to be well-pleasing. That means they make the boss happy. Uh, When the boss walks in, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. There's no goofing off. They're they're productive. They're, They're doing what I've asked them to do. And I would encourage you in this. If you have a Christian boss, if you are a Christian and you are working for a Christian boss, there is a unique temptation that Christian employees think that somehow I have the liberty to do my witnessing, my Bible study, all these things on company time because I have a Christian boss and he's going to understand. I'm going to encourage you in this. Unless you've asked your boss if that's okay, then don't do that. You're there to work for him. You're there to work for her. You're not there to do your witnessing per se. Now, if he or she says it's okay, that's fine. Otherwise, do it on your off time. Do it on your break. Do it on your lunch hour. Otherwise, you're to be well-pleasing to that boss. You're supposed to be serving him and serving his needs, okay? Next, employees are not to be argumentative. In other words, they're told what to do and they do it. They don't, they don't fight back. They, they don't uh, do a job half-heartedly. They do it all the way. Uh, Galen this morning read in Colossians 3.23, he says, whatever you do, do heartily as for the Lord and not for men because ultimately, who are you working for? You're working for God. Yeah, you've got this boss in front of you, but ultimately you're working for God. So if you're going to be argumentative with your boss, whom God has placed in authority over you, then ultimately you're arguing with who? You're arguing with God. So we don't want to be there. We don't want to go that direction. And lastly, this last pair of instructions that Paul gives to employees, he says, don't be pilfering, uh, but show all good faith. Do you know what pilfering is? You want to hear this word real often. Pilfering means to set aside for oneself. It means you're skimming from the boss, okay? It could be things like uh, you're taking office supplies home at night with you, okay? Or uh, you sneak the company's software home and you load it on your computer and then you just return the software the next day. Or maybe it's cash from the cash drawer. That's pilfering. That's taking from the employer what's his and using it for your own. Paul says, don't do that. Instead, show all good faith. And that good faith is not the faith in God that we're accustomed to in Scripture, but show faithfulness, loyalty to your boss. That he knows he can trust you. He can leave the keys to his office with you. You're not going to take anything. You're not going to skim off the top. 
you're not going to steal from him. You're going to show all good faith. And why is that important? At the end of verse 10, another purpose statement. So that in everything, you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that when you are talked about by your boss to somebody else, he says, you know, I got this employee over here. She's the most wonderful employee I've ever had. I can trust her with anything. She does what I ask her to do. She's productive. She doesn't goof off. She doesn't talk back. She is just a wonderful employee. She's a Christian, right? And it brings this adornment to the doctrine of God. It brings this beauty to the name Christian. Now, if that same boss talked about you and you were doing all these horrid things, he would go, and she says she's a Christian. Okay? See the difference? That's why we live the way we do, to bring beauty to God. Ultimately, the virtue of your life produces the platform then by which you can speak about the glory of God in your life. And so when the world sees you, and they're going to see a lot of employees, your boss is going to see a lot of employees in his or her lifetime. And if you are living a Titus 2 life, you're going to stand out like a star on a midnight canvas. It's going to be so bright. It's going to be so different from the other employees that he has. That's why these purpose statements are so important in this passage. That's why you've got to get those. We don't live for good empl- as good employees to feed our sense of self-righteousness. We live as good employees to give glory to God and to make his gospel attractive. So that eventually the, the boss wants to hire more Christians and other Christians and the non-Christians start to notice something's different you have an opportunity then to speak about your Savior and your Lord. It's to capture the attention of the non-believer so that you can, through modeling Christian living, you can then speak the truth of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's why Titus 2 is here. So, I want you this week to go out. I don't want you to be a Pharisee. I want you to do the things Titus 2 says, but I want you to be thinking in your mind, I'm doing these things to make Christ attractive to make the gospel attractive. I'm here to please my boss so that he sees Christian and he sees a Christian who makes the church and Christ look beautiful. And then if I have the opportunity, I'm going to speak about those things. I'm going to talk about this Savior who saved my soul from the grip of sin. Okay? That's our charge for this week. And next week we'll come back and we'll talk more about it. All right? Let's pray. God, I thank you this morning for these purpose statements. Without them, we'd be no better than the Pharisees that ran around in Jesus' day, claiming to be self-righteous, professing with their mouths, but their hearts were far from you. We don't want to be like that. Father, we want to make the gospel attractive. We want to live in such a way that when people see us, they see Jesus. Father, that only comes because we recognize how much we've been saved from how little we had to give to you, and yet you've saved us. You've called us child of yours. And beyond that, now you've given us a job. And now you've called us to live life. So we want to do those things in light of being a child of God so that you are glorified, so that your name is great. Father, we love you. We ask you to help us because this isn't always easy. It isn't always pleasurable to go to work and face the daily grind. So help us, I pray, 
to remember these words tomorrow and the rest of this week. I pray in Jesus' name.